Hello, this is Fred Goldstein, and I am live from the World Healthcare Congress. This is Health Innovation Media, and I'm joined by my brother from another mother. Douglas Goldstein, eFuturist, Health Innovation Media. We are broadcasting and sharing the insights that we have, but also the leaders that are going to be just talking with you today. Absolutely. For the next two hours, we've got a great series of guests coming in, including Promote John from Vivio Health, Linda Riddell from the Validation Institute, Tom Garner from Sky Medicus, Kenneth Aldridge, the Director of Health Services at Rosen Hotels, Bill Rogers from Orbita, Sunil Budrani, uh, the CMIO, CMIO of Innovation Health, John Madison from Kaiser Permanente, and Anish Chopra will close this one out from the Care Journey former CTO of the White House. So great show, right? I am definitely looking forward to the insights and uh, the conversations with uh, those folks and your experience. So you're deep into accountable health. You've worked with employees. You are an operator and you are so organized. But you've built large uh, companies that have truly changed the health cost perspective for millions of people across seven states. So you're the perfect person to interview all those people about what they're doing to make a difference in people's lives today. Well, thanks so much for saying that. But actually, let's get into your thoughts of this conference. So we've got a few minutes as we start here. Yesterday was just jam-packed, and there were sort of a couple areas we thought we might want to pick up on today. Well, there's an incredible group of leaders here, and I saw a lot of relationships being built and groundwork laid for really changing the dynamic of the healthcare quality and cost curve. Yeah, this is probably one of the best networking conferences I've been to. Absolutely. A target-rich environment, right? <laughs> <laughs> a friend-rich environment yeah. from my perspective. Right. No, it's great individuals. You really meet a lot of thinkers and you get great conversations in the in the hallways, in the exhibit hall, and even at, in the rooms when they're finishing up. But they're really people that, want, that are and are getting things done, so they're doers. It's absolutely right. They're doers. And some of the things that we're doing as of yesterday that we heard were both value-based care and social determinants of health. Two big issues out there and we had some pretty big speakers on some of that well, stuff. We're, we wish we could have got Ren Archer uh, who's a physician and he's on the hill for uh, the chief of staff for Congressman Fortenberry because Ren's got a concept of shared savings to get revenue back to a community from savings on health care and medical costs. Right. Ren's really got an innovative uh, proposal that we're working on that will hopefully drop into a bill that would provide communities with shared savings if they were able to show that the efforts they implemented in that community resulted in savings to the Medicaid programs for the federal government. And we'll have more on that probably later over the next couple of weeks and months as we try to see if we can push that through the health committee. But some of the stuff yesterday was around value-based care and how do we move the system to that. And I'm beginning to hear that resonate quite a bit more amongst providers. Well, the reality is there is a long-term cost problem in healthcare, and there's no choice about shifting risk to the people who are actually on the ground interacting with that risk and figuring out how to reduce the expenditures for uh, middle people in that process or lowering down that to increase the efficiency. I, I worked for United Way for a couple of years, very efficient organization. Right. Nine percent of the c contributed dollar going to administration. So we've got to figure out how to reduce the costs of all the intermediaries in healthcare. Yeah, and it was it was interesting that one of the uh, main panelists was from a large health system and actually just stated straight up, 30% of healthcare is, is essentially waste, unnecessary care, fraud, or abuse. We need to take those dollars out and apply them to the social determinants, which sort of stunned me because at least it's now being recognized and maybe there is some ownership of that. Well, and if we don't recognize it in our communities in this country, I'm going to Look, uh, call out the work at Health City in the Cayman Islands. Right. High quality, high volume, low costs, built on models that have been successful in other parts of the world, 
and they're right off the shore of the United States. So if we can't figure out how to achieve those objectives here, then I think medical tourism is going to see a big bump going forward. Right, and I know we've got some of that in today's show on medical tourism where we'll be meeting with um, the folks from Sky Medicus and Tom Garner joining us. But also what came up yesterday was social determinants. It's become not just a buzzword, but it sounds like people are actually starting to say, how do we do it? What do we implement? Whether it's food insecurities, housing, transportation. And so you're starting to see some unique products in those areas. Absolutely, and we're starting to see social services connecting with the medical communities, trying to use existing dollars they have to hotspot and find those areas where there's excessive falls because of structural issues. Um, So looking forward to more and more people learning about those as we work to create communities of health and workplaces of health, as opposed to consumption. And I'm not a consumer. I'm a citizen. You're a citizen. I'm a participant. I'm a member. I'm not a consumer. I may be a customer. That brings up an interesting point that you've said a bunch of times and you've harped on this. At the end of the day, as we individuals get incented for doing things around healthcare, whether it's a provider or a payer, there's a key individual left out of that incentive process for doing things to improve health. And who are they? The person, the citizen. Member, correct. The citizen or member is left out, and we're trying now the customer, patient, however you want to call them, based on your frame of reference. Although citizen may be the best term, and to bring them into this equation, I think we need to provide some incentives and look at innovative ways because they too need to be accountable for playing the appropriate role in their own health. So you know, it's an interesting. um, I've spent the last four years working on precision medicine in the intersection of digital health with the Inova Center for Personalized Health. And I was just uh, listening and scanning the news, and I, I see a National Geographic article. And the core of that is that we're all Africans. Every single human on this planet came out of Africa. It's a, just which wave, and then where we migrated to, and then our DNA evolved, and our skin colors evolved, and our attributes evolved. But we're all Africans, and race is an artificial construct. Correct, but 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 it's pretty clear now that race has a has a profound impact on one's health status, and we see that with the social determinants issue. We see these vast variations between um, lifespan in in two different communities that may be very close to each other, and so it really is important for us to figure out how we take those funds that are stuck inside the healthcare system in the waste in the unnecessary care and take those funds and move them out so we can bring those two together and create equity and, and get services into these communities that are that are struggling, that show these disparities in health or these social influences of health and begin to address those and address the underlying causes of them. You know, I, I've been on the forefront of working on that in the last uh, three years and I've been working with the leading lung cancer surgeon, uh, Sandeep Kandar, and um, he's actually taken a lung uh, resection, lung cancer patient, taking a four-day length of stay down to a one-day length of stay. Now, he's done that through a series of perioperative processes, prehab, rehab, uh, change in anesthesia, so the patients are ambulating with an hour after surgery. They're going home, for the most part, the same day. It's not. This is across all his patients, so there's no targeting or cherry-picking of the patients. The interesting thing is that the... It needs to be done in a hospital today. It's not quite an outpatient facility because of the complexity of a lung resection through minimally invasive processes. CMS doesn't have a model to reimburse a one-day length of stay appropriately. For, For that service. For that service. 
Wow. And so we don't want to put it in an outpatient facility yet right. for quality and safety issues. So it's, but CMS recognizes that. So we have to really work with the regulatory systems to recognize the innovations happening at the health system side. Let's do this so, in the hospital, but let's figure out an appropriate reimbursement so that it's, because if, if we, if the system releases the patient inside of a day, they get no reimbursement. So let me, let if me they, give you a concept. 26 hours, they get four days. But the solution is right there. If you were to capitate that service, you would obviously do extremely well because you've got them in for a day and then get them to outpatient. And you would be able to not worry about whether you have a billing code for it or not. Correct, it's just but there's in very the few health systems that have one bottom line. Maybe the Geisingers have one bottom line, one bottom line in their organization. UPMC, you know, they have as much revenue coming in from finance. So you're talking VA, DOD, Kaiser. The rest of the health systems have very little risk. And the movement to value is not a movement to full capitation. No, Unless you're seeing something different than I'm seeing. I agree with you. It should be across the continuum, except for those really sharp primary care practices we see out there. The Ioras, the Oak Street Health, and the Island Doctors who have been doing it for a while and, and, and demonstrating that as a primary care group they can do it. I think you're going to see more of that. I remember a year and a half ago at the Population Health Colloquium, um, Humana got up there in their keynote and said, We're, we are ready to capitate any provider anywhere in the country, anytime. And they're really pushing that. You're seeing now the formation of Convivo, which is their primary care network. It's, it's a capitated network that they're now going to take so, out to so other groups outside of Humana as well as inside. Right. So do you see that across the Blue Cross plans, Aetna, CVS? Do you see that across, or is that just kind of Humana's push to be a differentiator with full capitation? Well, I think you're going to see it with the others, and particularly as the others acquire primary care practices. You know, United and Optum are now the largest, I think, the acquire primary care practices in the country. You've got WellCare announced the acquisition of primary care practices. So you're beginning to see this, this change, and I think what's happening is each of these plans is jettisoning, jettisoning their health care, their, their health plan. So Blue Cross created guidance well and jettisoned the plan. United has Optum and the health plan because ultimately I think that that payer to provider relationship is going to go straight through without that intermediate health plan piece. So, you know, I, I think this e-futurist thing in me is rubbing off because you heard, heard it here first. Oh, yeah. Health plans, TPA, because it the move to shift risk are moving to full capitation. Is that is that your prediction? Um, I don't think we'll ever get there for the whole thing. As as some people have said, but you're going to have a continuum of risk, but the fee-for-service model will ultimately disappear. Have you heard anybody here at the conference talking about full capitation yet? Um, I, I mean, we, been in we enough lived sessions. through that. We did live through that era. <laughs> we did. As somebody said, we're going back to... Just a few years ago. <laughs> somebody said, yes, they were going back to 1995. And then somebody said, that's the problem. I wasn't born in 1995, and I've got some new ideas. And we need to get those new ideas out in there, into the system, um, and make sure they work and get it done. So... All right, you Neat heard stuff. it here first. There's a big move to capitation. Uh, it's kind of below the radar, but uh, I think you'll see more and more it's of happening it. happening in the C-suites of the major health plans. And speaking. Well, the other thing I have to point out is I think we're in a true era of customer-centered health care, but it's going to be driven by the Walmarts, the Apples, <coughs> the ecosystem players, Amazon, CVS. Look, I go to a CVS a lot more frequently than I go to my doctor. They have a much deeper relationship with me as a person and a customer. Uh, whether They've learned how to really do that, but I really think the true consumer product companies 
uh, are going to build a relationship around health, not medical first. Well, and I think you bring up an interesting point that's probably, um, I was talking to a chief medical officer of one of the major health systems that essentially does a whole state. They've got a big enough system to be doing the state. And they are extremely concerned that CVS is going to come in with Aetna, build out this sort of primary care network through the CVS stores, and then create enough volume in that health plan to renegotiate all of those hospitals' contracts There's and take no their question. rates down. And that's exactly you, right. You go go to uh, LinkedIn or some other source and look at the job openings at CVS. Look at what they're hiring for. It's all the people that have experience in building the nutritionist, the physical therapy, all around the Minute Clinic in the CVS and what and the off the off the shelf and the the consumables that are in that store. They're building that around their research. And I, you'll probably start seeing Starbucks or some other social environment in these CVSs. So go to your doctor and hang out with coffee. So I haven't seen that anywhere, but uh, I did walk through a demo site so at Walgreens several years I ago. I think you and just that came up with my next company idea. Behavioral health counseling at a Starbucks near you. And you just build that whole network of that. Stress relieving coffee. I just bought some of that. Absolutely. Or maybe we give you it's a tea wonders. to settle you down. <laughs> some nice green tea and see if we can settle you down. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to watch what's happening. What's so interesting about this conference, too, is they really do have top-notch folks talking about real issues and their doers. It's, it's a, a very uh, interesting vibe here this year. It's created the energy level has been ramped up. The number of people here is ramped up, and it's really been a fascinating uh, day and a half. And we now have another uh, day today, and then half of the day tomorrow with some big-time speakers. I mean, former Secretary Price spoke here. We've had Seema Verma here. I think they've got Secretary Azar coming tomorrow. Yeah, hopefully he's doing better because he's had some uh, health issues. Health yeah, issues. Much better. Uh, so we, we wish him the best, and you know, uh, strength of wisdom to navigate the shoals of difficulties and changes, but uh, if we all think we're human first and American second, then we're good. We're in good shape. And what's also interesting is when you look at this, and uh, in some discussions I've had with CMS and, and uh, some of the others, and what I'm hearing from some of the other people who've met with CMS as well, is this whole concept that I think the federal government through CMS and HHS is becoming a little bit less of a top-down approach and saying, we want you to, to innovate in this area doing this thing. And they're now more actively seeking out input from providers in the community and others to say, what? send us your ideas. They had an RFI go out last fall about that in the areas of pharmacy management and care management and Medicaid. And so they're actively seeking maybe some new concepts to test and pilot versus saying, go test our idea out here. So uh, some great insights. I mean, it's... Uh it's some good stuff, and we'll get into a bunch of it today uh, over the next uh, hour and 45 I'm, minutes I'm, or so doing I'm, the show. I'm hopeful. Yeah, we're hopeful, aren't yeah. we? We are hopeful. And it's and what's also interesting is the first day we had the program on high-performing health care, which has really been put together by uh, Vidar and Brian Klepper and Dave Chase and a few other of these individuals who have really been focusing on the employer market. And I think what we're now seeing is... I think the employers are going to drive healthcare for a while and get into that whole consumerism issue, the cost issue, the efficiency issues, and say, they've reached the tipping point, I think. We've had enough. 
We can't afford to keep providing these benefits for our employees at these rates with these kind of outcomes. And so you're seeing things like Walmart setting up these centers of excellence. And as an example, there was an article recently about how they let you have two options when you need orthopedic surgery. You can talk to your local doctor, and if they say you need the surgery, you can get it done there and have a big out-of-pocket expense. Or for no out-of-pocket expense, they'll fly you and somebody else to, to one of their centers of excellence who will meet with you and look at you and your problem. And so if you, you get need a the surgery, you do with it that, there, you vacation and you have no out-of-pocket. And wow. as they've done that, 40% of the surgeries referred to their center of excellence for back issues have been told they don't need surgery and need to just go back and do rehab or some other. Well, um, it's interesting. There's a couple companies here, and I, I was an early mover in the prehab rehab space through mobile and uh, gaming and other things uh, 10 years ago. But there's several companies here that have created remote physical therapy for back pain to reduce opioids. Uh, because if you reduce your pain through exercise and physical activity and they have the exercises and perhaps a social network tied into that so um, they indicate that they have some positive results but two companies here that are very focused on a opioid back pain uh, paradigm through mobile and Mm -hmm. social and we have heard of one individual who uh, has a, they have a company that has a back program that's been used by Michelin that had some very good results and has lowered costs. So we're now ready. Thanks so much for joining us, okay. Doug. That was at eFutures giving you his insights for today. And we're now going to be joined by Linda Riddell, who's with the Validation Institute. And Linda is a very good friend of mine and a very smart person as well who does a bunch of analytics and validates the results of, of programs for companies. So thanks, Linda, for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. So... Tell us a little bit about your background, Linda, and also, and then we, we'll get into the Validation Institute and the Health Value Awards, et cetera. Okay. In the right place? You're good. Okay. Um, I am a population health scientist, and I work with the Validation Institute doing essentially peer review of vendors' results. So a vendor might want to approach an insurer or um, an employer and say, put our program in and we'll cut your recovery time for low back pain, or we will cut your emergency room visits, or we'll um, cut exacerbations for your chronic obstructive pulmonary disease patients. So what we would do is come in and validate that there is literature showing that their program is related to the goal, and um, that they are collecting uh, credible and reliable data and that they're using a measure uh, correctly. And it's really important because we know in the industry we've seen all of these claims, particularly in wellness or maybe disease management or even other areas, in which a vendor will say, hey, we've reduced costs by this or created this measure and improvement in health outcomes, Mm -hmm. and they really perhaps don't have the right rigor, aren't using the right measure, not realizing other things may be impacting it, correct? Correct or they're comparing participants to non-participants, or they're making up a measure. That's always a good one. And so what you do is do these reviews for the Validation Institute so companies can then go to employers and employers can say, oh, they have been validated. I can look at that number and know that it's real. It's not some marketing piece. It's not some puff piece or fluff. Exactly. And um, when you do these reviews, about how many do you find have issues or things you need to talk to them about? mm -hmm. Well, uh, it's a collaborative process. Um, Some applicants do come in with all of their ducks in a row uh, and they've done all their, you know, proper diligence. But 
much of the time we're helping people to tweak a data source or frame their measure differently or describe it differently so that it's accurate. Um, so there's that kind of collaboration. And essentially what then grew out of the Validation Institute is the new relationship you have with uh, the Health Rosetta and mm. here at the World Healthcare Congress. Yes. And we just gave these awards um, for companies and it's the first year of these and you actually had to go in and validate those categories and all those applicants that had Correct. submitted. Correct, 17. For, yeah, which is it's just fascinating. And, and as a judge, I can say, I love, I, I, we got copies of your validation mm -hmm. work as you looked at it and said, yes, here's here's the stuff that makes sense, here's some stuff that didn't make sense, mm -hmm. that number was right, but I'm not really sure that's related to what happened, all of those kinds of things, and it was obviously really helpful for us as a judge. And um, I'm sure it's really helpful also to the companies as they begin to try to move forward mm -hmm. and say, hey, how do we make a, our stuff real and look better? Mm -hmm. Right, so we'll be uh, welcoming 13 new members uh, to the Institute because they went through the Health Value Award review and passed. Fantastic. So it's very exciting for us. That's good. And, and uh, if, if somebody wants to get information on the Validation Institute, where do they go? On the website? Is it? Sure. Validation Institute, all spelled out, dot com. Validation Institute dot com. Well, that's, that's great. And then we recognize with these companies this was started by Vidar Jorgensen as a way to get employers to know mm. that there are companies out there that are really doing a good job that can improve your outcomes or lower your costs or both mm. and how you and and these awards are ways to highlight them so we can begin to separate maybe the wheat from the chaff indeed indeed and some purchasers are coming to us and saying um, this vendor is coming to me promising all kinds of uh, you know utopian results um, I'm sending them to you. Let me know if it actually is the case. Well, that's great, and it, it's nice for the I think the employers to really understand they can they can make a difference. They can have an impact yes. on their health plan by selecting the right companies to come in. Mm -hmm. And were there any programs that sort of really caught your eye when you were going through those reviews and validating them? Hmm. Gosh. Um, I mean, I know it's a bunch, so it's probably yes, a little yes, bit of a I, fog. <laughs> and I, I didn't go through. I had a team working with yeah. me. Um, I'd have to say that Continental Benefits made very clever use of the data that was available to them. Uh -huh. So I, I give them a pat on the back for that. Well, that's great. That's yeah. great. And it was really fascinating to see which companies got the awards in different categories. Mm. Um, everything from like the Rosen Hotels, and they mm. have some really unique programs that they've had for years, to musculoskeletal programs and pharmacy management. There were a whole bunch of unique yeah. ideas out there. Integrated musculo muscular integrated IMC. IMC I know them as IMC integrated musculoskeletal yes. care or something like that they yeah. did a fabulous job too did they really yeah they've yes. been looking at data for a long time to understand and really doing some unique analysis of it so mm. um, it's great to see that rigor come up especially mm -hmm. in the space where we're getting a lot of pressure from people who because at the end of the day they're not seeing results but they probably shouldn't have expected to see results because right. the results they were being told about weren't really valid correct or I mean some of the some of the interventions may not even have a relationship to the outcome that they were looking for. Right. So I would think that, you know, it, for you, companies would want to say, I have a product, let me get it validated mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and reach out to validationinstitute.com mm -hmm. and sign up and get their thing validated. And obviously you can, as you said, you can help them walk them through and say, well, mm -hmm. why don't you look at it this way or send me this or adjust sure. your data. You didn't do the quite right measurement and help mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. And that they may or may not get through depending on what they've got done as well as 
those who are purchasing the service can go up there and find these validated vendors and exactly. use them when they go ahead to say, hey, I, got, I really want to focus on my health plan. Mm -hmm. So where do you see the Validation Institute going next? Does it continue to grow and bring in mm -hmm. more business? And mm -hmm. Actually, you're exploring um, some different models of working with employers and uh, vendors, so that's exciting, mm -hmm. um, looking at that. Um, we're doing, a, we just got approved last week uh, for four credit hours for the HRCI certification. Wow. Uh, for our online course. And that reminds me, you certify, I, I remember I went through a certification test, mm -hmm. so you certify brokers and others to be able yes. to um, look and, and, and understand the measures and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, our online course is recognized in 50 states for four credit hours uh -huh. uh, for insurance brokers, so they can get that bonus also um, to uh, maintain their license. But yes, it, it is a population health 101. What is a population? What is an intervention? What is an outcome? And I remember that course used to be done face-to-face. -face. I'm sure it probably still we can be. We did it here. Right. Oh, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. And then, but now you can actually go online, sign up, take mm -hmm. the class, pass the thing, and get yeah. certified. Correct. And I think for, as a broker, it's important to be able to, one, obviously, just naturally understand these. So when some vendor says, hey, sell my product through you to the employer, mm. and two, to begin to, to set themselves apart from the others and say we are looking at these things appropriately we've learned mm -hmm. how to look at them appropriately and so it's a good certificate to have I'd recommend people do that and and they can do that completely online register with a credit card it's on demand and, and, and take it as they uh, need to I think I'm actually probably coming up on a research it's ah. a two year isn't it it's it's gotten tougher. Uh oh. We've got quizzes and. <laughs> I'm gonna have to study a lot harder than right. the last time, but that's fascinating. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for joining thank us. You and for if anyone me. wants to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Um, they can email me at uh, Linda Riddle R I D D E L L at validationinstitute.com. That's fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. It's great to have you, and thanks for all the good work you do. Looking thank forward you. to next year's reviews and awards. And I guess I got to start look studying to take my test. Good. Thank you. <laughs> so thank you so much. That's fantastic. So that was Linda Riddell from the Validation Institute, and um, let me give you a sense again of the rest of our schedule today. So. Uh, we've got Tom Garner coming up from Sky Medicus. They're a, uh, a destination medicine site. Um, Kenneth Aldridge from Rosen Hotels. And we'll talk about Rosen and their unique program. And they were given three awards um, this year. They got a silver in one category and actually got two diamond awards. Um, and they've done some fascinating work that you'll hear about from Kenneth. We then have Bill Rogers from Orbita, which is a voice technology company. Sunil Budrani, the Chief Medical Officer, Chief Medical Innovation Information Officer from Innovation Health, which is a unique Aetna Innova um, formed venture. John Madison, who's the, uh, with the Chief Medical Informatics Officer from Kaiser Permanente of Southern California. And then we'll be closing with Anish Chopra in the last segment today, uh, who is with uh, Care Journey as their CEO and the former Chief Technology Officer at the White House. So as you can see, we've got a good group of individuals coming. It's a lot to talk about. And what I've seen at this conference so far from my perspective is, as we talked about a little earlier, a great opportunity to connect with people and really meet some people who are doing things, who are thinking about things and really making a difference. And what's also fascinating is this conference brings together a big cross-section from different industries. So you've got employers here, you've got not-for-profit social service agencies here, major healthcare systems, major payers and their CTOs, and you've also got 
um, folks in the political realm, from the military, DOD and VA, vendors, the new startups, they have a huge uh, startup group here that they have uh, small tables at all around the exhibit hall, and you can see companies doing things in children's health or in genetics or um, care coordination or opioids or a new app and all sorts of areas. And so it's interesting to see the vibrancy at the conference and obviously talk to the individuals in all of these different spaces. So if you haven't been to the World Healthcare Congress, I would recommend definitely looking to attend it next year in D.C. It's a fantastic event. Uh, packed this year when uh, the first day, in, even in all the major sp uh, presentations, it's standing room only stuff. So definitely worth taking your time uh, and, and coming to this conference next year. I certainly will be back. It's just been a, a great conference for me to talk to a lot of people uh, all over the uh, healthcare sector and, uh, and do that. So in just a second, we'll be joined by Tom Garner from Sky Medicus, and we'll... Uh, We'll talk to him about medical tourism and the rest of it. Hello, Tom. I'm Fred Goldstein. Fred, Tom Garner. Great nice to, meet, to you. meet you. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. And you're the EVP of Sky Medicus. Sky Medicus. So tell me a little bit about um, your background. Okay. Sky Medicus is a medical facilitator. We work with different countries, but we really are focused on El Salvador. Uh huh. And that's and why I guess El Salvador has this really nice booth here. I did get a chance do, to go through do. it and talk with them, and, and you're right in there with what, them. What I'm here to do is to introduce them to tell you why El Salvador is a great place for health care. So, and so we've got a representative from the Ministry of Tourism. Oh, fantastic. We've got a representative from one of the clinical providers, the hospital. Uh -huh. And then we have a representative from our concierge service, Salvadoran Tours. Okay. Because our focus is to have the patient have the best experience possible with absolutely no stress. So you brought the so whole crew here that we can talk through the process, they are the why it works, how it works, That's and right. the value of yeah. destination medicine or medical tourism. Especially okay, with in El Salvador. In El Salvador. So right. fascinating. So the first, Looking forward to first it. First person is Dina. Okay. So Dina, I will Dina, seats with come you. on over here. And we'll, thank you so much. Hey, Dina, I'm Fred. How are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. So welcome. And uh, tell us a little about your role and what you're going to talk about here with uh, El Salvador. We are very glad to be here. And we as a government, we are committed to be the best healthcare destination. That's why we support uh, high quality providers that also care about people. And um, that's why we are here promoting those uh, providers that also have the, the credentials and uh, meet the international standards uh, to take care of the patient. So um, here we have um, one of the best hospitals in El Salvador. So uh, let me introduce you. So him. let me talk about a little bit. You're with the government for El yeah. Salvador, yeah. and you represent the the Minister of Tourism, the Ministry of Tourism, and the Minister mm -hmm. of Tourism. Mm -hmm. And so you've set up these systems, and obviously a lot of people in the United States are worried about the cost of care. They know mm -hmm. they could potentially get it for less somewhere else and look for yeah. quality care. And you've now, set, as a government, are supporting that process to set it up as a destination tourism location. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we do inspections and, and we're, we're trying to, to select the best uh, facilities in El Salvador. 
because we care about quality. Mm -hmm. We care about the experience the people are going to have there. Uh -huh. so and how far about is it a flight from the United States to go to El Salvador? It could be from two to five hours. So not too bad. Depends, not uh -huh. too bad. Excellent. We have a lot of uh, direct flights. Uh -huh. So uh, people is really warm. They smile a uh -huh. <laughs> And they uh, take care of you as a family. So oh, fantastic. So who, who do we join by uh, next? Next is Cindy. Cindy, uh, okay. She represents one of the uh, best hospitals in El Salvador. Fantastic. So. so we'll talk to Cindy from one of the hospitals there and okay. get some more Thank information you. on going to El Salvador for some destination tourism. So come on in here, Cindy. Thank okay. you so much for joining Hello. us. I'm nice Fred. It's nice to meet Cindy. you. It's just a pleasure. So what is your role with the hospital? And oh. I'm the assistant manager. Okay, okay. meaning you're a little closer. The assistant manager of the yes. hospital. Yes. And uh, how big a hospital uh, do you work at? We have uh, 20, 120 private rooms. Uh huh. And um, five operating rooms. And five operating rooms? Yes. And what sort of services do you offer or see t people typically coming to your hospital for? Well, first of all, thank you for the support. Oh, your pleasure. <laughs> it's our to pleasure talk to about do this. El Salvador as a medical tour destination. Uh-huh. Um, uh, to answer your question, well, we have a um, focus on the quality. Uh-huh. The quality of healthcare in El Salvador is equal to, and in many cases, better than the U.S. So do you have accreditation processes your hospitals go uh, through? No, but we have, uh, for example, we are the designated hospital in case of emergency medical for the dignitaries, like the dignitaries, President Barack right. Obama, Bush, Clinton, Prince Felipe, and many other personalities. So if they're in the country and they have an issue, they go to your hospital? Exactly. Got it. So um, what do people has to come to El Salvador. Uh -huh. Well, um, we have uh, we focus on the patient and the family members. Uh, we encourage the family members to stay with the patient while he's recovering. Uh -huh. We support them as well as the patient. And coordination technology uh, with the latest equipment. Um, mm -hmm. We also have uh, different specialties. Um, that many doctors are complete her training here in USA or in Europe. And um, then practice in your hospital. Exactly. Right, got it. And um, it is very remarkable to add that we have uh, we offer the medical care a lower mm -hmm. cost than US. Right. So how much of a difference can you give me a sense of pricing for services? Just an example of that. Sure. For example, a total new replacement it's thirteen thousand dollars in El Salvador. Wow. In the USA is thirty one thousand dollars. Other example is cardiac bypass. Uh-huh. In El Salvador is around twenty four thousand dollars. Uh-huh. Here is over more than one hundred thousand dollars. Wow, right, right. Yeah. So you get a very large and obviously it is about quality and so your physicians are trained and you have all of the services in that hospital and the equipment, the latest equipment, yes. etc. The service that we offer are laparoscopic surgery, uh, orthopedic surgery, open heart surgery. Wow. Um, and, and we have a 24-7 access to MRI, CAT lab, CT mm -hmm. scan. Excellent. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, let me introduce to Cecilia, who is talking about the patient experience in El Salvador. Okay, yeah, that would be great. Thank, Thank you, you so much for joining us. So we'll now hear from Cecilia. 
and uh, get some information on the patient experience. Yes, how are Hello, you? Hello, Cecilia. Hi. Welcome. How are you? Thank I am doing you. great. How are you? Oh, fine. Thank you. And thank you for inviting us oh, to talk about a little bit about tourism in El Salvador. Sure, that would be great. Yeah, well, the, the, the two biggest reasons to fly to El Salvador for a medical care is because we have the best connectivity in the different airlines uh -huh. from any place from the United States. Okay. Yeah, to our to our country is in between two. It depends where you you're coming from. It's in between two or five hours mm -hmm. flight only. Okay. That's great. And the second good reason is because we run the U.S. dollars since many years ago. Okay. So you don't have to go uh, to any travel to exchange any any dollars because we use the same the same currency. Mm -hmm. And when somebody chooses to go to El Salvador, is is it all arranged from the time they leave their house, the flights and the visit to the hospital, and they're all picked up and taken to the hospital, and then they have a hotel, so that's all arranged for them to help them get oh, down yes. there easy? Oh, and yeah, definitely. Uh -huh. So you, since you're, uh, we, our job is to meet you at the very gate from the airplane, no right. at the very gate from the airport. When you go out from the airport, we take care of you at the gate. At the at the where the airline and, and so you help get them through customs and and uh, immigration and all the way through that all of that so uh -huh. you won't be bothering to make any lines long lines uh -huh. uh, we take you to a, 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 a very nice lounge area so you wait there until another concierge is taking your passport and your luggage to give it to you uh -huh. and then I, I, I I'll take care of you and it take it transfer you from the airport to the hotel and from the hotel to the hospital mm -hmm. so we as a company have all your program so we know what we're gonna do every day what time what uh, what interviews or or, or the follow-ups with the physicians mm -hmm. you have so you're never alone you're always with That's somebody great this speaks perfectly English. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, your English has all been great, oh, so that's thank fantastic. You. Thank you so much. And uh, um, we are, our company is 24-7 for uh -huh. the person who's going to be doing a medical tourism. And so the people typically come down there, say, with a spouse or a significant other or a friend, mm -hmm. so there's usually more than one person that travels with them? Oh, yes, yeah, uh -huh. definitely. And it will be better, right. you know, because right. you have always somebody with you in uh -huh. any case. Otherwise, we're going to take care of you the 24 hours. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. And then do you help to arrange for them as well and maybe they obviously they could stay at the hospital the whole time but maybe there's some other things they can do in El Salvador oh, while they're there yes, I mean it's got to be a great job. country to visit some beautiful stuff yes, to see yeah and yes definitely you can choose to to be in our country two days before your procedure uh-huh and do some uh tourism while uh-huh or you can do it after if you're your right, treatment, your health and yeah, everything. if your health and, and you know allows you to do it. Mm -hmm. So, do you have a sense of how many people come down to El Salvador every year for treatment or anything like that? Well, I've heard that a lot of um, we have a lot of uh, 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 people coming from different places, not mm -hmm. only United the United States. States. Correct. Okay. And the Minister of Tourism has the statistics. Uh -huh. I don't have it. Got I'm, it. Well, I'm maybe sorry. we'll get that from them at some point. Uh -huh. But thank you so much. You're so, very what welcome. would you? tell individuals when they're considering this what sort of questions should they be asking because obviously there are other places that may be saying hey go here or come here um, what should they be asking so that they get to the right place like a, a high quality facility when they're looking at medical tourism 
Oh, you mean what uh, my suggestions? Yeah, what are your suggestions that people, if they're considering this, what should they do? And also, how would they get a hold of you or El Salvador now? Well, they would get a hold of us through Sky Medicus. Through Sky Medicus, okay. So they have all our our uh, um, our records and they have all our um, things that we do and we are responsible uh-huh. of so they can give you all the details Fantastic. and uh, yeah the prizes and everything well mm-hmm. that's great so mm-hmm. thank you so much for You're joining very us welcome. it's a pleasure thank to have you, you. The thank same. you and uh, very interesting what they're doing in uh, in um, El Salvador so just a couple questions for you Tom we've got a few minutes here left um, now, Sky Medicus arranges all of this stuff. So, if an employer is interested in this, where do they go? How do they get more information they, on it? They come to, to Sky Medicus. Uh-huh. Uh, they can come directly to me, or they and can, is that SkyMedicus.com? Sky is that on the web, website? Uh huh. And they can make contact. We work with the employer, and we help them through the entire process. There is a process if you want to offer healthcare abroad as an option. Right. You need to amend your health benefit plan. Uh huh. File that with your stop loss carrier. And then, and we've got all of the forms for you to do that. Right. Uh, they were drafted by ERISA attorneys that we work with. So, th- and stop loss carriers to date love them because mm-hmm. they recognize if the plan has that as an option and they see a cardiovascular surgery come in as a pre-cert, they know they're not even going to book a reserve. Uh huh. Can you talk a little bit about the quality of care and how you look at that and how you've determined their We go through a very detailed credentialing process. Mm-hmm. We start with the physicians, we look at their medical degree, we do primary source verification on their degree, their license, their mm-hmm. residency training. We really focus on quality. We don't focus on cost. Mm-hmm. We focus on quality first. Price mm-hmm. will follow. Right. We then do peer review. We talk to other physicians that are in our network mm-hmm. because physicians want to be sure they're in networks of equal or same quality that they are. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then we look at the facility. We do a, a personal site visit before we take anybody in our network. Uh-huh. And we're looking at the facility. We're looking at the surroundings. We're looking at their records, their documentation. Uh, for example, with a hospital, do they have good preventive maintenance programs on their lab equipment? What's their daily calibration? What's their readmission rates? I mean, we go through, well, we say, a mini joint commission uh-huh. survey. And then for, um, for about how many people go from the United States to El Salvador? Any sense of that? Or how many years having go down we've, there? We've, we've had several thousand go. Oh, okay. But the, the medical tourism industry, which is an oxymoron, right. is really healthcare abroad. Got okay? it. But medical tourism is the sticky. It's, yeah, it's a so sticky every, term. Every, everybody's got it. Uh, it's a it's a $100 billion a year industry. Wow. And and growing. Because you can... I've got, I've got a good example. We've got a, a client from a college going down to El Salvador next week for breast surgery. Mm-hmm. She had already saved her $4,000 for her deductible. Right. The employer is waiving, if they go abroad, waives deductible, covers the airfare and hotel transportation for the employee and a companion. Correct. She's going down, so with her waived deductible, mm-hmm. she's now going to be able to get LASIK done on both eyes while she's there, which is an uncovered benefit. And she had already gotten a price where she lives of $7,000 for both eyes. It's only going to cost her 1800 uh-huh. in El Salvador. So she's excited. It works for everybody. Uh-huh. The employer 
was facing a, almost a, a rounded off to $18,000 for the surgery, just the surgery mm -hmm. where she lives. The total airfare, wave deductible, hotel, and the procedure is $9,760. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. So the employer wins, the employee wins, mm -hmm. and everybody's happy. And if employers, so the employers will go to you through Sky Medicus, set this up in their benefit plan, right. and then work with their individuals who will have the option you can go there, or you can stay here, right. and, and there's a difference in co-pays, etc. And um, how long have you guys been doing this? We've been doing it for a number of years, yeah. but primarily with individuals right. that were looking for non-covered services or they had high deductibles or no insurance. We just started last well, last summer, uh -huh. really focusing on employers. Right, so now that you're doing it for a long time with the individuals, employers are now looking for these options, We're right? taking it to the employers. Yeah. The employers, yeah. it's new, it's, it's different. Right. Employers, you, you run the, into the issue of, well, I don't know what I want to be first. Right. I want to, who else is doing it? I uh -huh. want to see what they've been doing. Somebody's got to be first. Right. I know when, when I'm in a buffet, somebody's got to be first in line. <laughs> I don't mind being the first in line. Sure. So it, it's a matter of, of finding those innovative employers that do two things. Number one, they want to improve their benefit offering, and they want to save money. Mm -hmm. It then becomes a win-win for the employee because you take somebody making thirty, thirty-four $34,000 a year. They would never be able, likely, to put in their budget to go spend four or five days in El Salvador or right. Caymans or, or wherever. With this, the employer's paying that. The employer's winning, right? And the employee is winning. And, and well, that's really fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us and talking about it. It's thank great you. to hear about Sky Medicus at skymedicus.com. And thank you, Tom and also Thank you for bringing by the folks from El Salvador. Great. It was thank great you. to hear directly from them. So thank, thank you, you so much. So there you have it. Um, we just talked about uh, some destination medicine or medical tourism with Sky Medicus in uh, El Salvador. Uh, fascinating stuff. And you're seeing uh, a little more acceptance of this, obviously. I know that I've uh, traveled to uh, Health City Cayman Island a couple of times and visited their facility. And they've gotten some pretty good attention from a large number of groups. Coming up next, we're going to have Kenneth Aldridge. And Kenneth is Director of Health Services at the Rosen Hotel, a friend and a, a, a great thinker here. Hey, Kenneth. How hey, you doing today? How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great to have you here. How's it going this morning? Oh, it's it's an amazing. It's a great event. I'm having a great time, learning a lot, and we want to take a lot back to uh, Rosen Hotels. Yeah, it's interesting because you're actually here, I guess, partially for the Health Value Awards, etc., and the work you do at Rosen and some presentations and things, but you're also picking up from the conference some other stuff. Right? Oh, absolutely. Like I said, on you know when we were on stage, we're always looking for ways to improve our program and bring more value to our patient population. So tell us a little bit about your role at Rosen Hotels and what you do. And, and for those who don't know, a quick, maybe a quick insight into Rosen's Hotels itself. Yeah, so uh, Rosen Hotels is lo uh, located in Orlando, Florida. We have currently nine hotels um, and about 5,700 covered lives are on our health plan. We have a 12,000 square foot medical center. Uh, with an amazing team of uh, clinicians and leadership within the facility, including 10 providers, a podiatrist, a chiropractor, lab, x-ray, everything, because we focus on access, quality, service, and cost. These are goals for our patient population. You know, being self-funded, we're paying every dollar, so anything we can do to um, improve outcome, health outcomes for our members, um, increases productivity, increases, uh, decreases absenteeism, and continues to maintain our, um, our low turnover rate. And you've got a, I believe, probably what some would consider a unique culture that flows down from <laughs> your founder, yeah. uh, uh, Mr. Harry Rosen, yeah. right? 
and he really cares about his employees. So that sort of is a driving force within your health plan thinking. Yes, absolutely. I mean, Mr. Rosen is very attuned to not only the hospitality community, but especially healthcare. Uh, he, um, we try to stay one step ahead of ahead of him, but uh, you know, we, we continue to come to these type of events to to learn what we can. Um, he's got a culture of wellness. He's got a culture of um, making sure that leadership is walking the walk. Um, he exercises every day. He swims every day. Um, he is a picture of um, of health. That's fantastic. So tell me some of the things you do in your program, and then we maybe we can get into some of the results and outcomes. Yeah, so uh, we we put together various programs. Again, 5,700 covered lives. We could have one premature baby, and that could cost us a half a million dollars. You know, so we put together a pregnancy program uh, managed by one of our senior case managers. Uh, we have uh, 56% of our pregnancies are high risk, so we're going to do everything we can to keep them healthy from initial diagnosis to uh, making sure that they're taking their prenatals, making sure they're following up with their OBGYNs, making sure they're following up with their uh, high-risk uh, providers, all the way through the, the, the delivery, and then also follow up right after that. Yeah, and just an interesting comment on that that some people should think about when you're looking at a hotel as, a, as a, an employer group is we talk about social determinants of health a lot, yes. and you actually end up with a population of employees who tend to be on the much lower income scale. They're housekeepers, they're gardeners, cooks, dishwashers, and so they tend to be in those communities that are impacted by social determinants of health. So when you're putting these programs in place and actually creating outcomes, you're not dealing with these all high-end white-collar workers, right? Right? No, we're not. Yeah. You know, and we love our um, our population, you know, their family members, and we have a really low turnover rate. You know, uh, we have multiple generations, sometimes four generations of families working for us, and we love them. Can you talk about your turnover rate, which I thought was fascinating compared to the industry? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, in the hospitality industry, I mean, it's, uh, you know, 50 to 80 percent turnover rates, and Mr. Rosen indicates that sometimes in the restaurant business, about 100 percent. You know, we're in the in the low um, double digits, sometimes in the single digits, uh, in relation to our turnover. And that makes a difference, you know, especially on the employer standpoint. You know, we don't have to recruit, we don't have to train, we don't have to do those kind of things. But now let's take a step back on the on the healthcare side. You know, now I've, we have individuals who are going to stay with us for 20, 30 years. Well, that's a good thing. I mean, that could be a good thing. You know, but if it's something that they're a very complex patient, uh, hemophiliac or what have you, then that could be a, a bad situation. Right, and obviously as people age, you'll have more yeah. conditions come up, but you're working on trying to keep them healthy through that process as part of it. But then when they do have an illness or something, you have a full sort of wraparound approach to how you manage that. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, again, 75 to 85% of the national health spend spent on chronic care conditions. If we can tackle those conditions, you know, from hypertension, diabetes, hypercholesteremia, those type of things, um, then we've, we've attacked many of the issues so that if we have a, a transplant or a, a motor vehicle accident that's high dollar we have saved some money in order to, to compensate for that and you also do some unique things um, and let's touch on two of them one of them is what the employee actually has to pay for your health plan which is a bit stunning and the second is what you did about insulin with diabetes <laughs> which I think is another great example of thinking the right way and it actually creates better results so perhaps yeah. first touch on what does the person pay for their health plan in your 
So uh, currently a single um, associate will pay $16.23, and that's including of medical, pharmacy, and um, dental. And that's per pay period? Uh, per, per pay period. Right. And, you know, so on the back side of that is, okay, they might be paying only $16.23 for a premium, but we don't have deductibles. We don't have coinsurances. You know, those are the kind of things that, you know, 35% of Americans are going to delay care because of that. Absolutely. You know, so he, Mr. Rosen has put together a program where we've removed those barriers. So I guess at 52 weeks, if I'm multiplying it right, it's like 750 bucks. It's about seven fifty. Yeah, uh, seven fifty somewhere on there. Yeah, but I mean, still very affordable. Right. I mean, you know, that's amazing. You're, you're going to find you're not. There's not other employers that are um, are providing that kind of a benefit. Absolutely. And then the only other cost, except for maybe a few drugs, is a hospitalization, right? Yeah. Hospitalization. One time fee when you're hospitalized of seven hundred fifty dollars. And then uh, so if you're a single um, associate, single premium, it's um, you pay seven fifty for your first admission. God forbid that you have another. It's seven fifty, and you're done for the year. Wow! Um, so even if you so have your a, total out of pocket might be twenty two hundred fifty bucks, unless you have a few little things in there that aren't covered. But everything else, there's no copay, there's no deductible. We do have copays. The well, copays, I mean, we do have some. And, but, but and it's not like a you know most companies out there. You have a 20 percent coinsurance related to CT scans and MRs. I mean, our associates only pay ten bucks. Wow. Ten dollars for a CT scan. And you that's know. what's fascinating, you know, because you see these people out there. Well, you, your first five thousands out of pocket, mm -hmm. you know, and 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 say to yourself, you're able to do this where you're not, in essence, pushing the cost off onto the employee. Correct. And but what, uh, you you were talking about what do we do with insulin? Well, a lot of employers are cost shifting back to the employee. We are taking it back. But we did it. You know, Mr. Rosen always says it's the right thing to do, and that's what we did. We found uh, a little bit of a savings. We applied that savings to the copays for the insulins, and now we have a hundred percent coverage for insulin. You know, with that before it was twenty five dollars, thirty dollars for insulin. It's, and, and what's so fascinating is a couple of weeks ago on Healthcare Leader, which is a tweet, they have a tweet chat, and they were talking about how the price of insulin was keeping diet, persons with diabetes from getting it. Absolutely. And, and then they're just crashing. Like you can imagine, the worst things you can have happen. And here you are saying, we figured out a way to keep it in our plan and to pay for it at 100%. Absolutely. I mean, it's not only that they're not taking it, but there's some people are using um, expired doses, those kind of things. And it was in the Wall Street Journal. And then here, not even a couple months later, we were able to put together this program. And not only was it the right thing to do, but it increased compliance and um, it just helps us with our controllability of our diabetic population. And so... Yeah, I know Mr. Rosen has talked about the savings he's estimated he's gotten out of the plan, and mm -hmm. I guess you must analyze all of this. Um, what does that look like? I mean, how does your plan compare to others in the hotel industry, et cetera? Oh, we have a much richer plan in relation to um, the benefits associated to it. But, you know, when we extrapolate the, our cost per covered life and then take it, uh, compare it to the national average, we're at about a $340 million savings over a 27-year period. And, you know, for a little company, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of well, money. Well, I mean, even for big companies, it's a lot of money. Hey, but we're always going to try and find ways that we can make a win-win situation for the patient and for our company. And I know some of it is because you have that really unique primary care clinic you yes. have, and you just get people over there yes. and and get them in. And then I think your primary care doctors, if I remember right, they round at the hospital. If somebody gets hospitalized, they actually go see them. It's not send them off to the hospital and you're done. No. 
I mean, so one of our medical director, um, he actually does uh, round at the hospital, and we see our pa- uh, sees the patients there. He's not there from a diagnostic side. Right. I mean, he, we have the hospitals who are there twenty four seven to take care of them, but he can touch with, you know touch the patient, communicate with the patient, make, make sure, sure that communication right. is going well. Yeah. Exactly. And then we have our case manager on the back end. We're watching everything that's being done, and the moment that they're discharged, our goal is to get them in with us or the specialist based on whatever the situation may be. Right. And then, what are some of the uh, if, if somebody were to say, hey, I'm an employer, I've got 1,000 employees, maybe i got 5,000, 10,000, what would you tell them to do and look at? I would have them look, again, going back to the chronic care conditions, you know, what is their mammogram rates, what are, I mean, what is their hypertension prevalence, what is their control rate, what is their diabetes population, what is their control rate, I would look at the mammogram compliance, what's their... Um, and um, you track all of that. Which we track. And what all of are that. you seeing? Have you seen improvements in your diabetes numbers, A one C and things like that? Yes. Oh yes. I mean, again, having the primary care um, facility, which we have a complete uh, package of providers and services, mm-hmm. I mean, we have the dietitian on staff, so we can identify that diabetic patient from a lab perspective, um, and then have them see the the the, uh, the physician or the nurse practitioner. Then we add them in into the the dietitian, and then we're adding in our case managers. I mean, we're doing all of that, and then on the back end, we're looking at medication compliance. Mm-hmm. And so we can drill that down all the way down to the individual patient. And, and it not, it's not that we're, you know, um, heavy-fisted. It's, you know, why didn't you take your medication? It's, okay, we're going to find out why did they not take it. Could it have been um, a side effect that they didn't tell us about? Is it that they're afraid? Is it that they don't trust the system? I mean, what is it? Or a language barrier. Right. And then we work with that individual to make sure we get them back on track. And um, here at the conference uh, on Sunday, we had the Health Value Awards, and uh, I believe you guys actually won three of them. <laughs> we did. And so what were those for? And, and, and then maybe we can ask you, how do you feel about oh, that? Oh, <laughs> my goodness. So we, we were blessed to be um, nominated for three awards. One of them was for um, outs- um, Lifetime Achievement for um, Public Health. Uh, public leadership, and the public other one leadership. is public leadership, and the other one was for um, uh, large employer, uh, mm-hmm. five thousand or greater, and then the other one was for um, innovative health benefits, um, mm-hmm. lifetime achievement. Uh, we were blessed. Mr. Rosen was blessed. Our entire <laughs> crew and outstanding medical center team. We were blessed with a silver award for five thousand um, uh, large employer. And mm-hmm. then we achieved the top ratings for Diamond um, ratings on the other two lifetime achievements. Yeah, it was fascinating to see, and it's the first year they've given those awards. Um, they had incredible nominees in yes. every category. So this, yes. And I did serve on a, as a judge on a couple of categories, and as a matter of fact, there was so much stuff to review. I don't remember actually which categories <laughs> or who I reviewed, but they were fascinating and some really, I mean, this was not some little giveaway thing. No. These were really some amazing companies, you know, Intel was in there, and some of these school districts and cities and vendors with unique stuff. Warren Buffett and was so in there. Warren Buffett, and so you you really did have some incredible stuff you've done, and you've been doing it for a long time, and proven to I think of the rest of the industry in a sense that you actually can put in a high quality program that people like that gets them to help be a part of it and they play their role within that health that health system and get outcomes and keep your costs down so it's really absolutely. fantastic absolutely mr rosen created this 27 years ago and he was a visionary and we just look to make it improve it every single day yeah well thank you so much for coming by kenneth it's always great to see you i can't wait to get down to orlando again and stop in and see you i'd love to have you and, down there. Uh, 
obviously the other point is the hotel if you ever get a chance to go to Orlando the Rosens are the place to stay I love that come place come visit us at so, Rosen Hotels RosenHotels.com right and, absolutely and uh, really take a look at the Health Value Awards and learn a little bit about what they're doing at the Rosen Hotel it's really fantastic so Thank thanks you. again Kenneth thanks. appreciate it yep and there you have it Kenneth with Rosen Hotels and uh, it's great to have him here in the booth and, and see what they're doing. They've really been doing some fascinating work. And I can see he must be... Oh, you're on the faculty at, U at UCF. That's right. You're a faculty member there, right? Faculty member and uh, a proud uh, alumni. And a great job on Shaquem Griffin with uh, Seattle Seahawks. Oh, that was incredible. I loved it. And the, the other thing to say is UCF is one university that is shooting for the moon. Yes. They have come up so much. I... I can also say that my wife got her got her RN at UCF, and it's a great school that's been incredible to watch its growth and and what it's done down there in, in uh, Central Florida. So great! Again, thank uh, you. To put in a little plug for UCF. It's a great place. If you haven't checked out that university, you ought to do it. So I believe coming up next, we're going to have Bill Rogers from Orbita, and uh, looking forward to that. So I think Bill's going to join us now, and we're going to learn a little bit about a little bit of a technology company that should be fascinating. I love this kind of stuff. So Bill. Welcome. So much to have you on here at the World Healthcare Congress and be uh, doing our two-hour live streaming podcast here. Uh, welcome. You're the CEO of Orbita, correct? Yeah, I'm the CEO and really appreciate having you on the uh, show. Well, it's fantastic. It's so great to have you here. So tell me a little bit, did you found the company? I did with uh, three other founders. With three other founders. So first of all, tell us what problem you were going after and, and, why, and what made you found this company. Yeah, it's really around patient engagement. And uh -huh. so voice is a way to engage that lowers the barrier for almost anyone to be able to interact. So Orbita is a voice technology company for healthcare. Correct. Right? And one way to kind of think of it is that if you think about a WordPress as a platform for web content management, Orbita is a voice platform for healthcare. So people can use the Orbita platform to build out products in the voice space, or do you offer those products in the voice space? Um, so we work with other organizations so that they can build applications to work within the voice space. And when we're talking about voice space, I believe if I looked at it right, it's like a, things from like Alexa or Google Home kind of stuff or, or Correct. It's, it, is, it is those. It, it Google Home and Alexa. Um, and you also, it's, it's not voice only, it's voice and display. So we also work with Android and iOS apps. So you'll see that the next generation of apps are going to have a natural language interface for people to be able to interact with it. And so tell us a little bit about this back end of what it is, and then we maybe we can get into yeah. some use cases and things like so, that. So it is a platform, mm -hmm. and so it addresses different audiences. So one of the audiences addresses the person that's the author. So it's you have two different uh, kind of groups. One are developers, and they're going to create the experience, uh -huh. and then then someone needs to maintain it. And those are like non-technical people that are changing how you're going to say when somebody does something, and they re how is it going to respond? Uh -huh. And they have a WYSIWYG voice editor, um, and also they have a way to control what's being s seen in the display if they're using something like an an Echo Show. Uh huh. And so. Give us an example of a use case built on the platform. So it's being used in a number of different remote patient monitoring applications uh -huh. where a patient goes home, they might be a, one of our customers is a company called PN Medical, uh -huh. they do COPD, and patient goes home, they engage through like an echo, 
and where they'll, uh, day one, they learn and get trained on what does it mean to be a COPD patient. Then, then as they use it for their actual therapy, so it, it actually assists them in their breathing therapy where they use a respiratory muscle device and it walks them through that kind of therapy. And then it takes assessment surveys, so it assesses the person during the day. And so when you think about all sorts of cases in remote patient monitoring, there's often, when you're having remote patient monitoring, you have IoT devices that are collecting data. And, and a percentage of that information creates false positive <laughs> data. And so you would have a person call. Instead of having a person call, they have a notification to ask them to do an assessment survey. To wow. ask them the same questions that a human would say. So if they ask one question, answer one way, they will get asked a different question. And with voice AI, we can make those assessments be dynamic. And I assume you've got a natural language processing back end on this thing? Yeah, so we've, we leverage the natural language processors that are out there. Okay. Things like Alexa and, and, and Google. We all, and we support, um, and that also gives us access to those devices as well. Got it. But we build an understanding layer so that when we get that information, we'll use things like context to help form how we're going to respond to that user. Right, so you've put in unique stuff around the healthcare that you're trying to target or the issue you're trying to target in the home yeah. for, for that. That's correct. And who's using the system now? Oh, lots of different organizations. So we have organizations like Merck and Amgen that are in the pharmaceutical space. Uh -huh. We have companies like Mayo Clinic that's using it in a number of different uh, uh, projects, like help, how do you help a patient be discharged mm -hmm. and walking them through a discharge process. And you know, I'll tell you, it's really fascinating because when Greg and I were up at the Population Health Colloquium, one of the presentations, uh, one of the keynotes was by, uh, I can't remember her name, but she was talking about the use of these in-home devices and said, this is where it's all going to go. Yes. It's going to go to voice stuff through these in-home monitoring devices. And it really created a fascinating question because those devices are listening all the time. And so... Um, obviously potentially emergencies they can help with or something like that and do you sort of have people building in the platform as well hey you know I'm really struggling need some help that kind of stuff yeah so um, you know it, it does open up a lot of different opportunities of, of how you can actually interact use like we work with in home care facilities where they're doing things like concierge services they're they're scheduling their caregiver time so they're doing lots of different things there's a little bit of a fine line that you have to play when it comes to a 911. Right, we, obviously. So yeah. we, we don't do 911. No. And, and we'd have to tell the person that that's not the. But it could potentially, they could reach out and it could send it to somebody else exactly. to then get a hold of them yeah. and, and do something. That's correct. Perfect. Exactly right. That's great. No, that's great. And that makes a lot of sense. And actually, it was, in, it was a fascinating question that I raised to her afterwards. I said, you know, that listening device could actually pick up an abusive home situation right. and then where where do you draw that line right. for right. whether that's reportable or somebody you know getting yelled at like crazy or even worse you know and and there's a potential to actually identify that type of behavior yeah so we we work with a, a number of even custom devices so there's a company called pillow health that makes a medication dispensing uh -huh. device and so it facially recognizes the person that's in front of you and then will say hey bill it's um, twelve. Uh, it's twelve fifteen. You you had a twelve a.m. Uh, twelve p. 
p.m. medication reminder, did you take your medication? So you have both outbound sort of approach and then the inbound approach, and I assume you can gather survey results. Correct. Um, and then do you link that then up with, say, biometric feeds or things like that? Correct. We can we can collect, inf we itself are one piece in the puzzle for collecting information. So mm -hmm. our platform can support IOTs like from an iHealth or Withings or a Fitbit uh, mm -hmm. for information that comes Great. into the system. Um, but we, uh, for other remote patient monitoring, that will take in other information, and that that information provides context to how do we form the conversation. I'll, I'll step back on the listening uh, concept just sure. a little bit because, th so technically, you can have devices that can listen if they're a custom device. But the way that in a um, a Google Home, or, right? Yeah. Or they they actually the only thing that they're listening to is the wake word. It's the wake word, which and I have Google Home in my house, correct. so it's Hey Google or yeah, Okay Google, right. Same thing with and the then Amazon. give me the weather or so, so, yeah, the, change uh, I, my I, Nest I thermostat. Think, <laughs> I think a lot of people are actually paranoid that all this information is going to Amazon or, or Google, and it's actually it's not. not. But you know what's also fascinating? You know, there's been some work around being able to pick up stress in people's voices Correct. and some of those other things. So perhaps you would set up a survey tool that says, hey, I've turned myself on, just talk to me a little bit, and then pick up that background stress and feed that out to yeah, somebody. And, and you know, that's actually what's really nice about natural language processing is that you're actually, instead of a person clicking and navigating through a menu, you could do that. It's dynamically, you could say, hey, I just want you to talk a little bit. And now we're recording it. Right. And then that recorded information is sent to an AI engine that's looking for markers for stress or depression or in COPD. Change in speech patterns. Exactly. Maybe there's been a potential issue with their, their maybe that Parkinson's or something, their meds aren't functioning right. There are a lot of ways you could look at that. Yeah, same, similar, we're, we're working with a company called Wound Tech. And so you can imagine. Uh, with, I know them. With an with an with an iPad, where you're collecting yeah. data, and you might ask the patient, uh, point point the point your iPad at the wound. So now the person never navigated to turn the camera on. It just it 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 turns on, and then they can point it to their wound and say, take a picture, or they can click take a picture. Right. But they don't even have to touch anything. And, and it it again lowers that barrier for people to do, accomplish things that were too complicated for, for some people to do. Mm -hmm. And you talked about pharmaceutical manufacturers using this or yes. I would assume healthcare systems use it. So are those your typical purchasers or hospital systems or yes. pharma? So yeah, they're, they're very common uh, purchasers of it and, and they're used in different ways. So in, the, in Mayo Clinic, they're using us in several different use cases. And so one's a branding site. So right. Mayo Clinic First Aid, all of that content is the, uh, the engine is our platform. So uh -huh. if you ask any question about first aid, it would be our platform right. that's driving the, the results. And I would assume, obviously, in a nursing home, you could place these. Let's say you wanted to do, say, remote monitoring and begin to integrate this into a remote monitoring program. Right. Do you supply the Alexas or Googles through that program, or do you yeah. have to have people say, go buy the Alexa or Google, or they yeah. have so, it? So there's gonna be different models. Right. There's gonna be a bring your own type model. Uh -huh. And that's one of the advantages of our platform being omni-channel. And it, you don't require the user to go out and buy something if they have a device. But the, the least common denominator is an analog telephone. And right. We can support an analog telephone. Oh, can you really? Yes. So you have the technology to do any of it. That's correct. We'll send it to analog, we'll send it to your mobile, we'll send it to Alexa, correct. Google, okay. any, anything we can do. And, and, and that's, in some ways that's because people 
even if they can afford it, which is which is fine, they um, they're not always at home where the device is. They might be oh, on the, they might be on the road and they need to get a medication reminder or they want to to ask something about what's happening or mm -hmm. you know do an assessment at that time. Great, and so. Um, you're nationally, you can implement this anywhere in the country? Correct. You can implement it And anywhere. people come to you and say, here's my use case, let's build on top of your platform. So you, how do you sort of price the product? Yeah, so it's a, it's a SaaS uh, platform. Yep. It's typically priced upon um, on the, uh, the, how, uh, the uptime that you want. So, you know, if you want a redundancy in different parts of the country and, and the, the number of transactions number of transactions across the screen. So great, so if anyone wants to get a hold of you, they go to? Orbita.ai, O-R-B-I-T-A dot A-I. Orbita.ai, yep. so fascinating. Well, thanks so much, Bill, that's a great thing, and I need to follow up with you afterwards on some thank other you. stuff with what you've got, okay? okay? Thank you. So thank you so much. Thank you. That's fascinating, great. Well, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Appreciate it, Bill. And coming up next, we're gonna have Dennis Dickers join us, who's the founder and CEO of Optonome. So Dennis, welcome. Hi. Welcome here at the uh, Pink Sox booth here at the World Healthcare Congress. It's a pleasure to have you in. Thanks for having and me. And you are, again, the founder and CEO of Optonome. So tell me, what is Optonome? Uh, sorry about that, but it's actually pronounced Optonomy. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> I am learning here, get, so Optonomy. But thank you. Go ahead, Optonomy. It's a, a creator word, um, putting two words together, Optimum Autonomy. Okay. Which is the goal for adults with autism or intellectual disabilities uh, will be to live more independently, um, be able to reach their goals no matter where they live. Uh, fortunately, most of them, um, because of their behaviors, they are uh, living in institutions. Right. And uh, as more and more people are um, transitioning out of hospitals and institutions, they want to live in homes of, that they desire and also to get. Uh, jobs um, that they're interested in. Mm -hmm. So what, what auto autonomy does, it, it trains anyone that wants to be in that person's life. It could be a caregiver, it could be a family member, to actually support that person um, based on their health care needs or behavioral needs, mm -hmm. uh, based on state regulations. And so each state is different. And what autonomy does is similar to how uh, Uber um, guides people, um, to drivers, to um, drive a person to their destination. Autonomy guides the healthcare worker as they once they get inside the home using sensors uh, to help that person uh, reach their goals um, through different prompts. So. Explain what it is. Is it an app? Is it a coaching program? Is it an education program? What, what do you have? So I call services? it a communication, training, and management platform. Okay. Uh, where you can use it as a chat application similar to WhatsApp or Slack. And that's and all HIPAA compliant? HIPAA compliant. And mm -hmm. we actually take it a step further where um, you can only access certain uh, communication channels or data based on your location. It could be a GPS location or it could be using our beacon sensors where if the person is not within one foot of that actual location, they cannot access, say, for instance, medication information inside the home. Mm -hmm. And so what is it? Is it for the user, the, the individual who has the issue? Is it for their family? Is it for everybody? Is it for the caregiver? 
uh, good question. It's, it's for everyone. Mm -hmm. uh, it could be for the actual individual if they're more independent. It could be for the family member if they're caring for that person. It could be for the home health care aid. It could be for the actual provider for remote monitoring uh -huh. of home health. And so what problems is it solving for those individuals? Um, so for um, these days, there's over 45% turnover rate with home health aides. Right. Uh, and so each time someone quits or leaves the workplace, that person has to start all over and try to um, establish a rapport, um, trying to reach their goals. Mm -hmm. So this eliminates uh, that, that growing problem in the healthcare industry and it helps people, like I said, achieve optimum autonomy at all times. Great. No matter who comes into that person's life, uh, that person will know exactly what that person's needs are at that moment. And um, who's typically purchasing this or, uh, use, or using it? Um, so it's a SaaS model where uh, the individual can sign up or their family members can sign up or the provider can sign up. Um, and it's free to start, start training. Uh, we have an adaptive learning that uses AI technology that adapts to the person's learning styles and it trains the users so that they could learn the best of their abilities as well. And when you say trains the user, is it training the home health aide, training the individual with the condition? Who's it training? Right, right. So it, it trains the home health aide, uh, and then it continuously trains them based on the needs of the actual individual health care needs. Uh-huh. And you said it's for individuals who have... Uh, it could be for any individual. We're focusing right now on um, adults with autism and intellectual disabilities, uh -huh. uh, helping them achieve their goals such as... Um, being able to go, go to a volunteer program or being able to go to a community college to, to um, have a class or even um, make their own meal for, by themselves. And so let's say helping them to make their own meals, how does it do that? Right, so it uses uh, ABA standards, mm -hmm. uh, which is um, task, task analysis and uh, it will prompt them each step of the way and it will ask for verification such as um, gather the ingredients out of the refrigerator, place the ingredients on the table, um, take out this pot, and then with the sensors in the home it actually will know where they are inside the kitchen. So you mentioned beacons, so you put sensors in the homes that locate that individual? Yes. And okay, and then it guides them to complete that task based on their location and time of the day. And is this all over their phone, in essence, yes. or it could be a computer, or does it matter? It's, a, it's some mobiles. It's a smart using your smartphone. Right, yes. using your smartphone. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And, and uh, where do you have this out now? Is it out? Now? Uh, so right now we're in Pennsylvania and Texas, and we're slowly rolling out to different states because each state has different state regulations in order to care for someone with special needs. And do you tend to find, uh, you know, that you're working like some places have these communities that have been set up for special needs um, adults and where they can be independently living, but they've got a central person there to help if they need it. And many of them are getting up in the morning, heading off on the bus to go work and then right. come back. But they live in their own apartment, they got to do their own meals, and they're at varying levels of disabilities. Right. And is that sort of a right. use case example for something yes, like this? Yes, that's a perfect use case because uh, uh, each individual is different, so you need a way to mm -hmm. customize um, some type of care plan uh, so that they can be as independent as possible. And so that's a perfect use case to allow someone to live anywhere that they desire and they're able to do activities that they're interested in, such as And traveling. what might be the cost for something like this? Uh, it starts off at $10 per month, 
if they are looking to um, be as independent as possible, such as equip their home with the smart sensors, uh, it's, it's $50 per month. It's fairly cheap compared to um, uh, having someone manage your home uh, by actual human user. Right, right. No, that's fascinating. And so if somebody wants to learn more about Optonome, where do they go? Optonome.com. Uh, Optonome. I keep saying it wrong. Optonome.com. I'll get it right. Optonome. Because that makes autonomy. sense. I think, op, what did you say you called that? Um, optimum Autonomy. Optonome.com. Optonome.com. Great. So fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us great. here, Dan. It Thanks sounds like a great uh, idea, and I hope that continues to grow. I know great. some communities, actually, that I may need to refer you to <laughs> for Optonome.com. So thank you very, very much. Great, Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. So here we are in uh, the World Healthcare Congress, and uh, for the rest of the day, we're supposed to have Sunil Boudrani, the CMO, CMIO. Innovation Health, and then John Madison from Kaiser, and finish up with Anish Chopra from Care Journey. So I'm joined by Howard Gerber, the president of Big HR Data. Hello. So welcome, nice Howie. Hi, nice to meet you. It's a pleasure to have you. So tell me about yourself and what is Big HR Data? Great question. Thanks. <laughs> um, Howie Gerber. Yeah. Um, started Big HR Data last month. We are a real fresh startup. Uh, we're a spin out of HR Best Practices, a data-driven healthcare cost containment company. For the past 17 years, we've helped employers uh, control their healthcare costs through auditing eligibility, medical claims, pharmacy claims, uh, disease management, and uh, wellness programs. Mm -hmm. And so you provide this, you'll, you'll take their data, give them reports back on what's going on, what they need to work sure. on, etc.? Sure. We're kind of the, uh, pardon my French, badass of the employee benefits community. Uh, in terms of governing the plans and recapturing overpayments and uh -huh. containing costs. Uh -huh. That's at the HR best practices side of the house. Uh -huh. But we're here to discuss uh, big HR data, which again is a spin out. And if life is a fork, the left and, and all forks lead to uh, healthcare cost containment in our world, the left side of the fork is the audit fork, mm -hmm. which finds mistakes to quantify and monetize right. savings. The right side of the fork is a much more positive fork, mm -hmm. which is let's use data to ultimately drive personalized communications. Mm -hmm. And there's a couple of different ways we do that. I'd be happy to walk you through that. Sure, so tell me a little about it. Sure, great. So uh, we're using gamified pulse surveys for all kinds of benefit programs, benefit tools that are currently not optimized today. So if you think of all the wonderful tools that are out there, like telemedicine and pricing transparency mm -hmm. sure. and on-site clinics, the good news is they're wonderful tools and they are being utilized, but they're not being fully utilized. They're not being optimized. Right. Employees are simply, and policyholders and patients are not enga fully engaged in uh -huh. their benefits. Mm -hmm. So through these gamified pulse surveys, we are bringing these tools to top of mind. Uh -huh. So there's a library of about 50 different surveys that are rolled out on a periodic basis, again gamified, so people win prizes. And, and they learn about telemedicine. Or and they, they learn, learn exactly. One of the other benefits, exactly. and then you're hoping that they use that to next time they go to do something. Exactly. Uh -huh. Exactly. And so you focus on these different things, having 
in their, their package until medicine is an obvious one where you see maybe two to three percent utilization in a company yes. it could be much much higher yes if people had it top of mind understood how it fits in the system and how to access it and when to access it and that's sort of what you teach them with through a game exactly and what makes us a little different is because we're data aggregators that's our core competency healthcare data aggregators and HR data aggregators we're bringing in census data or indicative data and job-related data, as well as external data like medical claims data and pharmacy claims data, so provides clients with the context for the answers to the survey questions. So we can see by business unit, by department, by gender, by age band, by number of years with the employer, by performance rating, by plan or coverage tier, the information. Uh, and, and this way the communications can be tailored to either a business unit or a department or any population. Um, and how, how far down do you take that? We take it as far down as the client wants us to. So ultimately, if you can picture big data, hence big HR data, we have a very wide footprint with say 40 or 50 different surveys uh -huh. over a long period of time. So ultimately, what so we can drive is highly personalized, targeted communication specific to that member. So when you, let's say you're launching a telemedicine, let's just pick that as the easy one because sure. it's pretty easy to understand. Yes. And you're going to try to push the increased utilization of their telemedicine program because it's low and they're obviously clear case use cases for people using it more. Exactly. And you pick that up in the claims data and they're off to their doctor and they could have done a telemedicine call or they exactly. go to an ER or an urgent care center or whatever. Um, and you roll out this survey, do you do that on a regular scheduled basis? Do you do that based on real-time changes in data and information for that person? How do you do that? Wow, I love your vision of the second part of your question. Well, that's it, what I'm wondering. Are you doing that? Or <laughs> no, oh, I, I, there yet. I wish. No, but here's the deal. That's Nirvana, and I don't mean to interrupt, but if we, we're only as good as the freshness of the data that we have. So as a large group, a self-insured group, the question becomes how quickly can the carrier provide or the TPA provide that data sure. to our clients? Because as you know, there's a lag. Oh, right. Now you're going to have a, you're depending on obviously when that baby, the claim gets billed, when yes. it gets transferred to you and all that. Exactly. So, um, and do you focus on areas like pharmacy? We do. We do. So the what whole, sort of things you do in the pharmacy space? Well, so let's take a couple of layups. So let's you look at generic meds or mm -hmm. let's look at mail order meds. If we see an employee or a member and they're going to the brand or they're going to retail and we know that for every X percent increase there's a Y savings and it plus the time savings factor we can drive that communications particularly if we know they're on a maintenance med we can drive that right. through them again through the surveys you said by bringing the the opportunity to top of mind there's also a portal so I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. keep going. Go ahead. Oh, with there's a, there's so, so the, the employee, you know, when you think of gamification, people want to know, how am I doing? How's right. my score, right? I go into a portal, and I see all the different surveys that I've taken. I say, oh, look at that. There's a thing called generics. Oh, there's a thing called mail order. Oh, there's a thing called telemedicine. Hey, what's that again? Oh, yeah, that was that thing, that little survey I took. Wow, so now I've raised these great benefit tools that are time-saving and money-saving, to, to my mind. In a way, it's like advertising, right? Right. Oh, yeah. You know, or call it what you like, education, call it what mm -hmm. you like. Yeah. Got it. And um, can you, gosh, sorry, I forgot that next question, but it was having to do with the pharmacy area. 
Um, obviously, you know what the meds are they're on. Yes. You can send a message to an individual, hey, you know, you can get that mail order cheaper or something like that. Do exactly. Things like that. Yes. And what sort of uptake do you see or response rate to the surveys? Well, uh, I worked at Price Waterhouse for about nine years before starting my company and Mercer uh, for actually a total of 18 years. So uh, it's never about the money, but it's always about the money. Right. So the question comes down to is really what's the ROI? Um, I can't tell you exactly what the ROI is yet because we're new, but I can tell you this. We offer success-based terms, no money down deals, right? Mm -hmm. And we do that in our audit business as well to the extent that the carriers permit us right. to do that. Our, one of the principles that we like, to, uh, that we go by in our audit business is to give clients at least a 4X ROI in the first year. Mm -hmm. And if we don't do that, the client doesn't pay. Mm -hmm. So 4X return is pretty good. how do you determine the return? Well, as a data guy, we believe in transparency. And in the example you gave about telemedicine, we can see the telemedicine utilization increase, and much the same way on the claims side of the house, we can see the ER visits or the office visits decrease. And assuming that everything is equal, all things equal, caterers, parapets, I think the phrase is, right? We have to normalize and adjust to make sure the company has, the employer hasn't grown by X percent. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it would be a, a formal sit down with the client to say, hey, here's the data, here's the objective utilization data that we're looking at. We're seeing an uptick in telemedicine. We're seeing a decrease in EHR or office mm -hmm. visits. We think that this is, in, <laughs> connected. <laughs> right, right. We're seeing a leakage here, right? right? And it comes down to, you know, like any business, mm -hmm. um, do the parties trust each other, right? And no. So, let me ask you a little technical question. Is the back-end SQL rules kind of based, or is it uh, machine learning algorithm-based stuff, or what are you doing back there? Uh, it's more the former than the latter, yeah, but yeah. I will say this, uh, and this is not an endorsement of a product that we've licensed, but it's such a strong platform, I have to mention it by name. Yeah. So we licensed an incredibly powerful survey technology platform called Qualtrics. Oh, Qualtrics, sure. Do you know Qualtrics? I do. Oh, okay, great. So we were at their user group meeting in Utah last month. There were 7,000 people there. Uh -huh. It was a who's who of the survey right, world. Right, And quite frankly, while they do have some clients using it in the healthcare space on the carrier side and the provider side, it's really, people aren't using it on the HR side. Right. right? So we said, well, we, we licensed it primarily for our dependent audits, mm -hmm. uh, make them industrial strength. I mean, 60% of Fortune 400 organizations have licensed Qualtrics. We said, let's use Qualtrics to drive big HR data, plus it gives us the environment to integrate in the enterprise data and the external data, because we're data jocks and can figure that stuff out mm -hmm. anyway. And I'm very excited about it. And I do know, as I spoke to the CEO of Qualtrics, about their AI direction. Uh -huh. And they are, they definitely have something there. They're ahead of us. Yeah. <laughs> and they will be, continue to always be ahead of us. That's good, uh, that's good. But we will piggyback on their success, I'm mm -hmm. sure. Well, yeah. fascinating. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Howie. And thank if you. someone wants to find out about your company, where do they go? Sure, uh, bighrdata.com, or our audit business is hrbestpractices.com. Fantastic. And well, great meeting you. Thank yeah, you for thank your you time. Thank you so much for yeah, stopping yeah, in and quickly great. telling us about your thing. Yeah. That's fantastic. I like a your neat idea. Yeah, great. Oh, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Well, I think day. he's probably got some pink socks to, to give you. So For me? That's great. Oh, well, yeah. Go I talk to him. Uh, well, there you have it. Um, Big HR Data. Uh, another interesting group here. As you can see, we kind of cover a broad spectrum of areas. 
with um, with uh, this conference, the World Healthcare Congress, really brings in a lot of different folks. We're bouncing around here with a number of different interviews. It's really a, a cool environment. I like it. It keeps me on my toes, wondering who they're going to drop in here next. I think um, we're supposed to have coming up uh, either Sunil Budrani or John Madison, I believe, but obviously their schedules can change and we've uh, thrown in a few extra ones just for fun for you. So next coming up will be John Madison with Kaiser Permanente and this should be a fascinating one. We'll talk to one of the leading folks in this area, which will be great. So hello, John. How are you doing? I'm good, Fred thanks. Goldstein, it's good How to see you, you again. You, I'm doing yeah. fantastic. Let me take this badge off. Have yourself a seat here and join us in the in the booth here, the Pink Sox booth at the World Healthcare Congress. So uh, when did you get in? Uh, 2 a.m. this morning. Oh, did you really? Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're looking pretty good for that. That I'm running great. on fumes. Uh, I'll bet you good. are, but thank yeah. you so much for spending some time with us. My pleasure. So it's it's great. Tell us a little bit about your role and what you're doing now at, at uh, KP. That'd be great. Well, I I have um, the privilege of working with one of the best teams on the planet in terms of not only leveraging some of the exponential technologies, but also in deploying and supporting them. So we have uh, we have absolutely. Um, uh, focused on how we translate new knowledge and new technologies into practice. And if you look at our outcomes, um, our outcomes continue to rise um, at, at the, you know, the, the top of the industry. Right. And the reason for that is not necessarily because we have every one of the best technologies or every one of the best algorithms. It has so much more to do with how we operationalize and optimize the implementation. So. Because there's such an epidemic of burnout, particularly in primary care, in the care delivery system, um, how we help people make the right decision and how we make it easiest to make the right decision at every moment in time is more of the secret sauce than the technology of the algorithms themselves. So, so we have uh, monthly meetings that are very detailed about what we've learned since the prior month about how to operationalize and optimize a particular tool, algorithm, approach, alert, reminder um, to uh, improve the quality of care while managing down the burden on particularly the physician because of the final common pathway for work is, is through the in-basket of the physician. And that, that has become such a huge issue that we're really focusing on, on improving the optimization and oper operationalization while at the same time reducing the workload on the physician and that's a delicate balance. Yeah, it's really fascinating because obviously we have this big physician burnout issue. At the same time, I, you may know Kaveh Safavi at Accenture. Of course. And Kaveh is a great guy, a good friend of mine. He, he said at one of the conferences, he said, look, you know, it was, we were interviewing him. He said, yeah, we put in all this technology and our workforce productivity has gotten worse. Right. So you're right. actually looking at that issue because it, it's not about just dumping this tech in there and saying have at it, but how do you make that integrate into a practice so the provider doesn't get burned out? So exactly. And you have a I, I would I would suspect or at least I would claim you have a unique environment in which to do that, which allows you to create that type of system to to sort of teach us all maybe how to Absolutely. implement this stuff. So what is what are some of the unique things you're finding or things that excite you in that area with the with the new tech and how to make it work? What are some of the things you would recommend to a practice that says, "Hey, we're bringing something in. How can we make sure it's a as the best possible product you said, it's not necessarily about the tech but about the process." Sure. 
Um, so I uh, co-lead with Bill Marsh uh, two initiatives uh, right now. One is virtual care and, and telemedicine, and the other is remote monitoring of you know wearables and, yeah. and remote sensing data. And what's absolutely fantastic about the course that we're on, and the reason that Kaiser Permanente is such a good test bed for a lot of new ideas, is because we have integrated care, we have integrated operations, mm -hmm. we have uh, the entire life cycle. We, our members uh, tend to stay with us for long periods of time, so we yeah. have large longitudinal data sets. Mm -hmm. And so with those, we can actually begin to deploy virtual care, whether it's self-service or uh, texting or emailing or chats, uh, sessions or video visits, in a way that we can look at for this person, for this problem, at this moment in time, with what information we have from remote sensing, how can we deliver the most effective care at the highest convenience for every individual and manage down the workload on the care delivery team, translation, less stress, less cost. So the thing that's, that's very exciting right now is developing, so we pioneered a lot of evidence-based medicine, a lot of Mm -hmm. A lot of great institutions around the country have done the same, but, but we started very early on, on implementing evidence-based practice. And what we're trying to do is extend that into the virtual world so that we're monitoring um, the, the whole life cycle of where has this person been, what is their current problem, how did we manage them along the sequence of virtual care through all the way to recommending they come in for a face-to-face -face visit, emergency right. room or primary care, any doc, some doc. Um, and uh, being able to understand what works and what doesn't in given situations. So I think the future around an evidence-based approach to virtual care and remote monitoring is wide open. It's just absolutely wide open. Right. And uh, we're tuning and tweaking and constantly uh, learning um, what works. And one of the fascinating things, and if you talk to any of the the uh, companies that, that do virtual care and, and uh, telemedicine, they will tell you that one of the easiest wins is not to have a video visit with someone you've never seen before, but in follow-up care. And so that reflects the fact that you already built the human relationship that can be reinforced with the convenience and the accessibility of virtual, virtual care and telemedicine um, without having to start from scratch with a human relationship. And you know, that's fascinating because when you think about telemedicine out there today, I know I hear from all of the big providers of telemedicine, our utilization rates are too low. We, we, we're getting 2% of the population to use it or 4% of the population to use it. And we know it's it could be much more uh, broadly used and, and, and many more visits. So it's a great point. If you don't know that provider over there, you're, you obviously be much less likely to use it versus, hey, I've got, a, I've got a provider, I'm now using it, I'm now comfortable with it, and maybe I'll use it in another instance. Is that sort of what you're getting that, at? That, that is very much part of the, the picture, and, and I'll flip mm -hmm. that observation yeah. a little bit, is that it is an uphill battle to get people to change their habits in general. Change is yeah. hard to do both to get our members and our providers to engage in video visits, but we're on an exponential growth curve. We're, we're on track for about 200,000 uh, video visits this year, wow. um, which is about tenfold, almost tenfold what it was last year, and I expect that we'll see another exponential in increase the following year. However, there's a big caveat, and the caveat is is that you don't always need to have the image. Right. And so telephone visits and, and uh, 
uh, advice uh, call center nurses uh, can do a whole lot um, where you don't require uh, some of the encumbrances of a video visit and there are some so we want to give the right person the right advice using the right communication modality and an appropriate level of empathy on the human side no matter what communication modality we're using and so video is one of the modalities but by no means the dominant the one. one right and so you could be looking at asynchronous you'd be looking at an individual talking to a coach absolutely you could be looking at a um, talking to a nurse and, and essentially use that spectrum of license and expertise as well as the spectrum of contact types exactly. to maximize that. And, and one of the things we don't want to do is have someone say, I don't want to visit, I just want to have a chat, chat session. I'm a 65-year-old smoking with diabetes. I'm having crushing <laughs> chest pain. Right. What should I do next? Right on the keyboard. Yeah. The answer As I run is, it through Facebook to the, the, the messenger. Get yourself in to an emergency yes. room. Now. now. You don't need a video visit, you don't need a chat session, you need to come to the emergency room. And on the other side, we'll have people who uh, want to come to the emergency room for uh, a relatively minor complaint that would be much better well, handled. So we, we, we need to balance, uh, based on an evidence-based yeah. approach, the personal preferences vis-a-vis -vis the evidence basis for what's appropriate for that person at that moment in time. Absolutely. And when I was doing Medicaid disease management programs, we used to have our nurses, we would understand why people were having difficulties either getting the appointment they needed or not, or, or, or getting an appointment they didn't need it. And it was how they were able to communicate and explain their symptoms to the provider. So you would have people acting like they were having the heart attack right. and they were getting in inappropriately. And then the people who couldn't explain it right and the nurse would be going, oh, we got to get you in right now. Right. So being able to deal with that spectrum of knowledge and health literacy and getting them to the right place is obviously critical. Well, this has actually come up in our design of, <laughs> of interactive questionnaires for self-service. So what, what we haven't done yet, but which we intend to instrument is to be able to learn from experience using machine learning yeah. to know when someone is gaming the system <laughs> so that if they don't get recommended an appointment when they finish the questionnaire, they bat, they change a couple of the answers until they get an they appointment. They get the right answer. Right, right. right. Getting in. I'm getting so, in. Because we want to do what's best for every individual. Right. And they're gaming the system to get what they think might be um, the most appropriate modality, but it, like in the case of the crushing chest pain, yeah. we want to make sure that they don't game the system so that they get the convenience of a remote conversation when in fact we need them in right away. Yeah. So it works both ways. It does, absolutely. We want, we want the right modality and the right care for the right person at the right time, and sometimes that's that's moving up the scale and sometimes it's moving down it's the scale. It's optimizing the whole system. Exactly. You're optimizing the whole system. So let me ask you something else in this in, in these studies that you're doing is you're beginning to look at these communication modalities and different ways to get out there and uh, feedback mechanisms. Are you now and you talked also about remote monitoring. So you're now bundling in sensors and wearables and the rest of it sort of a, as a wraparound for that, correct? I wouldn't really describe it as a wraparound. Not a wraparound. Maybe a standalone data source. Well, right. Yeah. And, and so it, the, one one of the real virtues of remote monitoring is not necessarily um, the coolness factor of of you know having um, you know the the quantified self out yeah. of curiosity, but one of the biggest problems in machine learning and machine learning is going to transform everything absolutely um, and, and I believe for a long time that while some people are concerned that it's overhyped I, I do believe that it is underhyped mm -hmm. uh, because it's gonna it's going to absolutely transform everything 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 
And with respect to remote monitoring, one of the biggest problems we have is your, your machine learning recommendation based recommendations are only as good as the training data set you have. Correct. In healthcare, we not only have the most diverse data sets of any industry, but we also have the most sparse matrices. That, and that means is that we may have a thyroid test from three years ago, we may have an x-ray from five years ago, we may have a clinical visit from a year and a half ago, and when you try and look at the chronology and the sequence of events, which is so critical to understanding what is really going on, particularly from the behavioral and the social determinant side of healthcare, how do we have more complete data sets on individuals so that we can really begin personalized care. I don't Absolutely. like the term precision care. No. I prefer personalized care and having remote monitoring is going to give us less sparse data sets for each individual so that we can then begin to transform population-based machine learning into individualized machine learning it's so that we give you the best recommendation for you. For you, it's taken but to it an end of one. it may be very different for your identical twin who doesn't have the same lifestyle habits you do. Absolutely. It, you know, as we talk about precision medicine, genomics, and the rest of it, and people wonder, how does that fit in within population health? The difference? No, it's just a more effective assessment tool to get to an N of one so you can then get the absolute right intervention dropping out of that thing because you now know all of this stuff around a person. Oh, they're going to respond to this type of message. Oh, on this day they don't work out but we need to get them to begin working out and by the way their gym's open tonight and I can message them this way and get them to go. So it's really fascinating to watch how machine learning is going to impact this stuff. It is and, and one of the curses of being able to see around corners <laughs> is, that, is that for someone who can see around corners it's really easy to know what's next but it's really difficult to know, as Niels Bohr famously said, predicting is really difficult, especially when it's about the future. Um, <laughs> the, knowing when something's going to happen. So I gave a talk 20 years ago um, a, a, with essentially an obituary for population health and an introduction of personalized yeah. health. We're still not there yet 20 years later, but the end game unequivocally is not managing a population, it's about managing every individual with everything As we an know individual. about that individual. Yeah. And this, this whole notion of, of population care is simply an accommodation for the fact that we don't yet have enough information about individuals and enough uh, decision support for the specificity of the experience of that individual in their life, which extends way beyond being a mm -hmm. patient. And I like to say that patient-centric care is an oxymoron because patients are what doctors call people. Right. But it's patients person. have a much broader set of experiences that influence their health Absolutely. than just having a high blood sugar or a high blood pressure. So as I tell everybody, you move a population one person at a time. Exactly. And that's, and that's what it gets exactly. down to is how that's do you, how do you find the it. intervention for that individual to improve their health outcomes and their health status and then do it across all of that population. Right. Exactly. Yeah fascinating. Well, it's great. It's fantastic to have you here, and thank, thank you, you so much. much for your insights, and we'd love to catch up with some more. We need to get you on Pop Health Week at some point and do a whole podcast on it. My pleasure. So thank, thank you, so you John. It's a pleasure to have you in. Have a great Thanks. day. And cut. <laughs> <laughs> and now we'll be joined by Anish Chopra, our final guest for Care Journey. So, um, great insights from John. You're hearing from a real leader in this area done a ton of stuff in this space and obviously very excited about the opportunities in telemedicine, remote monitoring and the rest of it. So um, uh, something as I said I'd love to get him on Pop Health Week in the next uh, couple of months and uh, really uh, pick that brain a little bit and find out what, what they're doing because it's some really unique stuff. 
So, uh, the conference has been, as we talked about, great. We've got about another 15 minutes of showtime here, and we'll uh, then move into um, our post-show wind-down, and I think we may be trying to do a few more interviews because there are some other companies around here who have done some really fantastic stuff. So I think we got Anish Chopra coming over now with Care Journey, and uh, we'll get a chance to talk to him. Hello, Anish. Fred Goldstein, how are you doing? Good to see you, Fred. How Good are you? Good to see you. I'm doing great. So welcome to our show here. Thanks for having the me. The Pink Sox Studio, located at the I World Healthcare it. Congress. I great to have it. you here. I should have put my pin on. Oh, Ooh. yeah. What's up with the pin? It's in my bag. I'm sure it is. It's all good. It it's all, all good. good. So how's life been treating you? Very well. Thank you. Good. Exciting so times. It is exciting times, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So how do you see, before we get into maybe care yeah. journey, how do you see this world going on right now with all of the stuff spinning? Positive. Yeah. Through this uh, otherwise controversial political who's up and down, I am a little disappointed about the VA with Secretary Shulkin. Oh, so, that was so a very complicated <laughs> situation. Um, but under the hood, the three active ingredients of care delivery reform, the movement to value-based reimbursement strategy, the opening up of data sets held by the government, and the shift of interoperability towards open APIs to patients and to the apps they trust, that movement is continuing almost unabated. And so I would applaud the Trump administration in this area because it makes the most sense. And we can have a different discussion about bigger issues on immigration reform and the like later. But this is uh, this is the positive one. Yeah, I, I, I said at one point there were like three key words I would use to describe this healthcare right now: crazy, dysfunctional, and opportunity. It you is know, because it really is. There's a lot of potential with what's going on to really begin to make a difference. But I think that's resonating with people. Here's a sobering point, though. Today's Washington Post mm-hmm. uh, had a fairly negative article on uh, the rollout of the diabetes prevention program. Right now, if you go back in history, 2011. Uh, I put up a blog at the White House website to say, calling all innovators, if you've got an idea to change the way we pay for care, we have a billion-dollar innovation fund and want to jumpstart this move to value bottom-up. The YMCA applied. The program got approved for testing. Right. The actuary evaluated the results and said, my goodness, four-to-one return on investment, better for patients. They avoid getting full diabetes, lower for the taxpayers. And... uh, Sylvia Burwell at the time, HHS secretary, said, I'm going to put this in the in the reimbursement rule. The Trump administration doubled down. April 1, it goes live nationwide. This is like a great story of changing the way care is delivered. How many patients have been told by their doctors or ACOs or others that they'd be a great candidate for it? Right. Well, crickets are chirping, according to the Washington Post story. So we've got a last-mile implementation problem that is more about culture, mindset, than it is about technology and, awareness. and data. And it's, it's like the annual Medicare wellness. When that came out, Same thing. It, 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 the first year or two, uptake was low. Now there are people all over the place talking about it, and I hear providers saying we can push those numbers up, we're getting more people to get it done. Uh, and it's this, uh, another sobering point, yeah. I happen to have a, an IRB-approved license yeah. to the CMS national data set. Uh, we just mapped it uh, last week at the NACOS conference. Yeah. Uh, if you mapped all 560 Medicare ACOs, yeah. There's one at 80% of their patients got their wellness visits, but they all cluster, and the average ACO is around 32%. Mm-hmm. So there's as much variation if you kind of did the scatter right. plot. Even within the organizations who have the financial and organizational heft to do it, 
we're still only at 32% on average. Right. And just so you're aware, I actually got that put into the bill. God bless you. <laughs> Boom. You mean to so, make that a free service? No. To, to Senator Harkin wrote it in as a CPT code after I met with him. That's a brilliant. Well, it's thank you for It's called the Annual Medicare Wellness Visitors Established a Personalized Prevention Plan, and our product to use for preventive medicine was called the Prevention Plan. That's a brilliant idea. <laughs> so, By the way, we have to get going on the interoperability standards for care plans. We do. Absolutely. Because right now they're like blobs of documents that are not really moving around the system all that well. So talk a little about your organization with Care Journey, what yes. you're doing, how it's impacting the system. Well, thank you. Uh, look, my view when I was in government was that if we liberated the linked Medicare ABD file, that is the longitudinal patient's history, we could put this in the hands of doctors, hospitals, and the economic, all the new entrepreneurs that are out there, we would see magical new models come to life. Uh, now that I've left the government, one of the challenges is I had not seen a lot of creativity in the use of that information. Right. So we built an open data utility service. The basic principle is keep prices down and value up. If, if you get a Medicare patient file, you can hand it over to us. We'll process it and we'll provide for you probably 25 openly available open source algorithms about which patients are getting the care they should, which ones are not. And one of the most sobering ones for me is uh, we've been measuring care transitions. Yeah. We put in, like your, your idea of the wellness visit code, the country has this uh, uh, up to $200 of reimbursement. If a doctor spends a half an hour explaining the discharge instructions to patients after they leave the hospital but are still sick, we've gone back and calculated. Roughly, as of the third quarter of last year, only 12% of the time when patients were eligible for this service upon discharge did they actually get the service. This in the Medicare ACO population. So we have so much room for improvement, and part of what we do as a company is we help Medicare ACOs. We about have 53 uh, Medicare ACO partners. We're very proud of our support. We're just an open data utility, and they mm -hmm. say, hey, tell me things like this. What percentage of patients by doctor down to the patient level were eligible for this service and didn't get it? So we give you kind of like a year in review, look back trailing 12 uh -huh. months, and then you can measure performance it's over It's got to be quite the dashboard. It is. <laughs> it could be overwhelming, right. so there's definitely a challenge. We've been really focusing on the chief medical officer yeah. at these ACOs who are trying to understand clinical interventions. Mm -hmm. And because claims data historically has been used for insurance reports, your PMPM and you're spending too much on the ER, right. that doesn't really speak to the chief medical officer. We want to know who's a great candidate for uh, advanced care planning, right. who's a great candidate for care transition services, and how well are we performing on those models. We speak to that leader in the organization. And as you see that information going into these organizations or these ACOs, the chief medical officers now getting this stuff, are you seeing those movements in those indicators? We're, we're seeing more attention paid. Uh, uh, the question about how to transmit to the last mile, right. to the physician or the care manager, ultimately even to the patient, remains an open work in progress. So yeah, today, and that's sort of a system process change, behavior is. change it approach. Is. And as you said, yes. you know, Medicare, the annual wellness visit comes yes. out. It's a, it's it's a great idea. The DPP is a great idea. It's Absolutely. badly needed in this country. I just did a presentation in Mississippi on how, on how you would seek to eradicate type 2 diabetes in the state. Oh, my goodness. And launch with the idea of, well, you, first, you got to identify everybody who's a diabetic or pre-diabetic. Pre yes. And there are 650,000 estimated. And they're actually starting that program now in Jackson Hines County. What a beautiful with idea. the University of Mississippi Medical Center and the, and the FQHCs. And, but then you got to intervene. You've got to take that last mile. Take that question. Will they be doing that de-identified or identified? 
Well, right now, the, it's through the FQHC. They know their patients. They're going to have them. Well, that yeah. means identified. Yeah, they would be identified. Now, the interesting question is, and this is the quandary for me, uh, when you are a clinic, yeah. you see a portion of that patient's overall care. Correct. So if you had the longitudinal view of you, the Medicaid claims data, you could actually probably do a better job of identifying absolutely. the right population. Do you so, have that? Well, so here's the thing. We, forget me as a yeah. company, I'm a nobody, uh, the government said there are three legal ways to share that information. Uh-huh. One, you can apply for a license on the uh, Virtual Research Data Center, VRDC. We've applied, we have a license, and that's what gives us the access to the national Medicare file. Yep. And according to uh, CMS last week, they're going to add Medicare Advantage encounters. Right. And now TMSIS, which is the Medicaid data set, will come in next year. So that's one path. That's a de-identified path, but right. one to give you aggregate statistics so I could tell by doctor in Mississippi, to your point. Right, what's going what on? What looks like it. Yeah. The second path is the ACO model. Mm-hmm. So Medicare ACOs, there are a few in Mississippi. Farzad mm-hmm. runs one, I believe, and there are several yeah. others. In fact, we have a few that we work with through our health system partners. Uh, in theory, the state could ask the ACOs to run this type of program within the data that the government's given them. Mm-hmm. That's more longitudinal in nature. Uh, but lastly, the patient themselves can now aggregate this data. So the state of Mississippi could offer a blue button app that says, hey, we'd like, you know, Mississippi Healthy or something. Yeah. Please opt in to allow us to access your data so we can coordinate your care better and, and make pull sure it down through the blue button. And pull it down through the blue button. So there's now multiple paths into well, the data set. I'll go back to them as they just launched this two weeks oh, ago. God bless them for and doing say, it. And say, here's some other things. I applaud Look at, what they're doing. And I've also talked about bringing in other players like a Solera, you know, with the DPP Excellent. on maybe a Don Duo, maybe an Omada, and Yes. Really bring in all of these great outside resources and sure. build a complete wraparound. Yeah, I love it. God so. bless you for doing your that. That's a well, that's thanks. a wonderful thing. Thanks. So back to care journey. Yeah, you, you're now providing these folks with unique look at the data yeah. they've got in their memory. We call it say, clinically relevant insights clinically, on yeah. the claims history, and and that that they can then say, wow, you know, we we really can focus over here. We need to do a little bit of focus over here to yes. change stuff. That's right. And um, so is your typical user approaches through a plan, a provider? No, 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 no. Medicare ACO. Medicare ACO. So, so we today serve about 53 Medicare ACOs from the very large, like the Delaware Valley ACO, yeah. which is the joint venture between Jefferson Health and Mainline in Philly, to small rural health systems uh, clinics, uh, including Southern Kentucky Healthcare Alliance, one of the best performing ACOs, uh, in partnership with their uh, management company, Imperium. So mm-hmm. we run the gamut in terms of who we try to support and serve. The basic principle is Medicare is giving you this massive Excel spreadsheet every month. Uh, are you squeezing as much clinically relevant insight out of it as possible? Right, because like you said, they're still stored in the old health plan kind of way. I'm going to yeah. look at this bed day. I'm going to look bed at this days stuff. per thousand, right. and, and that's important. It is, but, but not that important in the grand scheme of clinical leadership. Because correct. you want to. The theory was you're going to actually find those patients that you can activate for a program that you hadn't done before. And so do you then provide them with a monthly report? Yes. Here's your monthly dashboard of what's it. going on with all these key you indicators. You and, uh, and then we can trend that stuff over time. Yeah, so, so every month we add new queries. Whatever's free and open source we <laughs> run. So Professor Ashish Jod Harvard has a segmentation model. Oh, if sweet. you're a frail elder, you have the highest proportion of avoidable spend of any patient segment in the Medicare population. Without having to go through proprietary vendors, you can just run the Ashish uh, score and have it down to each patient level, and that's simple and easy. And then and free. you could set your care management teams, you your doctors, it. up to intervene you up against it. that. Wow! NYU Langone publishes the avoidable ED logic, so in every patient that goes to the emergency room and is released, you can now screen 
Should that have happened in the first place? 40% of all Medicare uh, ED visits that are treatment released are avoidable. Now you can dr drill down to the individual patient and why. Uh, and then AHRQ, the agency, has an avoidable admissions model. So you can, and low value care for choosing wisely wow. has 23 claims. So you can go down the list and find openly available free queries that if you organize your data in a certain way can be run relatively painlessly and you can then have the output to do what you wish and cook your own recipes. We have health systems, physicians who want to create their own uh, segmentation models and we support them in that regard. And again, we want to be a utility service. We're not venture backed. We right. don't have IPO ambitions. We're just a simple open data service and I hope to be useful to as many Medicare ACOs as the country. Well, that's great. So if a Medicare ACO wants to find you, they go to carejourney.com. Yeah, and well, they can even request a they can request a free benchmark report on their own uh, service, and we'd be happy to facilitate that as well. Well, that's fantastic. Thanks so Thanks much for Thanks for hearing me out us. on this. Oh, yeah, great stuff, Anish. And what we need to do is get you up on Pop Health Week, and we can talk more in depth I love about it. care journeys, because great stuff. That's Thank a really that. neat area you're working in. You're so very Thank kind. you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And that'll have to do it for today's show. This is going to be a wrap for our show from the World Healthcare Congress. It's been a fantastic two days with some great people. So thank you all. From Greg Masters and Fred Goldstein, I'll say we'll see you later. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> no, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.